America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day where the Biden administration is nearing a great and maybe worthwhile decision. A decision to send cluster bombs to help our allies in Ukraine. Uh, they're meant as a bridge, the U.S. says, until additional conventional weapons are available. Why are the cluster bombs controversial? Why shouldn't we provide what the military experts say would be the most uh, telling uh, assistance we could possibly provide them? Uh, we will get to that on The Michael Medved Show. There is some controversy here. There, of course, is deep controversy among Republicans in terms of policy toward Ukraine. Most of the Republican candidates for president, except for three, are very much pro-Ukraine and pro-supporting Ukraine's struggle to survive. And uh, the three who don't are Donald Trump and his chief uh, challenger, Ron DeSantis. And in, in particular, uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, who uh, has a, the most anti-Ukraine position of any of the leading Republicans. Uh, we will also be talking about the battle over <laughs> whether Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be expelled from the Freedom Caucus or not. She is allegedly going to be expelled from the Freedom Caucus because she, on the House floor, in a matter that we covered, called uh, her colleague, uh, Lorena Bobbitt, Bobbitt, uh, she called her a little B-word, and uh, that was considered not to be appropriate. So what happens? Does she get expelled? She doesn't seem to care whether she gets expelled from the House Freedom Caucus or not. The Freedom Caucus being that part of the Republican Party that is uh, identified as most pro-Trump, most uh, pro-right-wing uh, conservative, uh, so what about uh, the idea of Marjorie Taylor Greene taking her place with them or taking her place with the mainstream and with Speaker McCarthy? There's also continued discussion, of course, about what people call cocaine gate, which is the cocaine discovered in the White House. <laughs> people uh, assuming that uh, they had a successful movie, which uh, came out, which was quite funny called Cocaine Bear, about a wild bear who becomes addicted to cocaine and behaves badly. Uh, is the sequel now going to be Cocaine White House? Uh, who knows? We will talk about that with Ari Fleischer, who has worked in the White House, and uh, also about the coming up of the, uh, the, the debate in the Republican Party the debate is taking place next month. Isn't that unbelievable? It's now July. The debate is taking place in August. Okay, it's August 23rd. It's late in the month of August. But still, at this point, we are going to determine who the viable candidates will be. Will it be some of the new candidates like Suarez or uh, the governor of North Dakota? Uh, or will it be... Uh, who knows? 
Uh, certainly, Chris Christie would be there, one of the leading columnists in the country for conservatives in the Wall Street Journal says that Chris Christie could easily defeat Joe Biden. Really? But how does he get there when he was so thoroughly disliked by so many Republicans? Uh, we will talk about that as well. We'll also be speaking to uh, one of the leading rabbinic scholars in the United States, uh, Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, who has written a book about providence and power. And it focuses, to some extent, on the way that uh, early American leaders uh, were inspired by biblical Hebraic uh, background. And uh, we will be getting to that as well on The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Uh, first of all, on this issue of uh, the cluster bombs, the... Um, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan talked about those cluster munitions and why the U.S. is giving them to Ukraine. This is clip eight. So the bottom line is this. We recognize that cluster munitions create a risk of civilian harm from unexploded ordnance. This is why we've the defer deferred the decision for as long as we could. But there is also a massive risk of civilian harm if Russian troops and tanks roll over Ukrainian positions and take more Ukrainian territory and subjugate more Ukrainian civilians because Ukraine does not have enough artillery. That is intolerable to us. Ukraine would not be using these munitions in some foreign land. This is their country they're defending. These are their citizens they're protecting. And they are motivated to use any weapon system they have in a way that minimizes risks to those citizens. And uh, then he talks about the use of those cluster bombs in defending uh, their territory, which is exactly what the Ukraine-Russia war is about. Uh, clip 12. This is not Ukraine taking these and going and using them in the Middle East or in Southeast Asia or in some faraway land. They're using them on their territory to defend their territory. So we believe that they are highly motivated to do this. And beyond being highly motivated, they have to directly answer your question, provided these assurances to us. In terms of uh, the ambassador's comments and other comments that, that have been bandied about, let me just say that the use of cluster munitions by Russia in this conflict is completely unacceptable on multiple counts. First, they are using them to attack a sovereign country in flagrant violation of international law. Second, they're using them specifically to strike after civilian targets, not only military targets, also in flagrant violation of international law. And with this weapon system, as well as other weapon systems, we have identified war crimes committed by the Russians. And uh, then also there's additional commentary, which is, is a very important in terms of getting perspective. Uh, by Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, a conservative Republican, who says for Ukrainian uh, forces to defeat Putin's invasion, Ukraine needs at least equal access to the weapons Russia already uses against them, like cluster munitions. Providing this new capability is the right decision, even if it took too long, and is one I've long supported. Uh, that for somebody who's been highly critical of the Biden administration and some of its hesitations in Ukraine. 
Uh, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, who is now a CNN contributor, talked about how the cluster bombs would work and what they could mean to the ongoing war in Ukraine. It can cover a wide area. When those cluster munitions, U.S. munitions, are fired by U.S. artillery, uh, not the HIMARS uh, type, the rocket type, but the artillery round, you get between 72 and 88 bomblets that come out of that shell over a target land and that can strike both, uh, both uh, soldiers and equipment, John. Uh, so it does cover a wide area, mm. but in order to explode, they have to hit something, whether it's the ground, a vehicle, a group of people. They were designed in the 80s to go against large elements of Soviet, uh, uh, both equipment, primarily artillery and air defense, but also large uh, consolidations mm. of people, men. Uh, so those are the pros. It does cover a wide area. Uh, but as you said, it has a very high dud rate as well. Okay, that's uh, General Hurtling talking about the cluster bombs. Uh, there is more about the debate over Ukraine and the debate over a different kind of invasion that people are worried about, which is the great number of immigrants who come over to the United States without authorization. Uh, there is now an attempt to revise the citizenship test, uh, a format likely to become tougher. We'll uh, go through some of the questions on the citizenship test. And uh, if people want to call in, uh, we'll figure out a, a basic prize to give to anybody who can answer three of these questions correctly and easily. Do you know enough to be a citizen of the United States? We'll be right On the Michael Medved show, uh, there is talk, as mentioned before, about the U.S. revising the citizenship test. Uh, it is likely to become tougher, says uh, uh, the headline uh, from from the government, acknowledging that it will become tougher. The U.S. citizen test is being revised, prompting concerns from immigrants and advocates about potential disadvantages for those with limited English skills. Uh, one of the things that they're going to do is add a speaking section to the test. For the exam, uh, an officer would show photos of everyday scenarios and ask the applicant to verbally describe the photos. Currently, the speaking ability is assessed with the officer simply asking personal questions of the applicant. In other words, they, it is a requirement when you are getting a naturalization test to basically be able to take the test in English, which is one of those big questions that I've always had, which is we have ballots which are made available in literally uh, scores of languages. I believe it's more than 50 languages where you can get ballots. Well, it, given the fact that you're supposed to be able to speak English to become a citizen, why are we giving out ballots in elections which require that you become a citizen to participate to people who can't speak English enough to read a ballot and to recognize the name on a ballot that uh, they want to mark? The um, 
Uh, meanwhile, the uh, there is a, a one immigrant who they quote here. His name is Shai Avni, who immigrated from Israel five years ago, became a U.S. citizen last year. He asserted the new format will likely increase the stress level of the applicants. Quote, sitting next to someone from the federal government, it can be intimidating to talk and speak with them. Some people have this fear anyway. When it's not your first language, it can be even more difficult. Maybe you will be nervous and you won't find the words to uh, tell them what you need to describe. Avni said it's a test that will determine if you're going to be a citizen. So there is a lot to lose. See, this is one of the basic things that uh, people lose track of, is what a good sign it is that we have so many people who really are willing to work hard, to make sacrifices, to go through jumping through various hoops to become citizens. It's not a bad thing that people want to be citizens of the United States. It's a positive thing. One of the things that they're changing in this exam, they uh, are rather than simply asking the applicant, for instance, to name a war fought by the U.S. in the 1900s, which, come on, if you think about it, if you don't know uh, anything about American history, it, you still might be able to figure out one war that the U.S. fought in the 1900s. I mean, the 1900s includes wars within very recent memory, right? Like the Gulf War. But in any event, now it's going to be a, a different format where they don't ask that question, but they ask a uh, question with um, with multiple choice. And for instance, that question would come this way. It would say, uh, okay, uh, you can read that question and then you select the correct answer from the following choices, which were... Uh, which was the war that was fought in the 1900s? Was it A, the Civil War, B, the Mexican-American War, which we used to just call the Mexican War? Uh, was it C, the Korean War, or was it D, the Spanish-American War? Now, should a citizen be required to know details of the Spanish-American War? It seems to me not necessarily, but this is not knowing details about that. It's basically knowing which is the right answer. And uh, I think that basically most people who are listening to me now would know that, okay, is it Civil War, Mexican-American War, Korean War, or Spanish-American War that was fought in the 1900s? And, of course, it's the Korean War, which was fought between 1950, right in the middle of the 1900s, and 1953. Uh, currently, the applicant must answer six out of ten civics questions correctly to pass. Those ten questions are selected from a bank of a hundred civics questions. I have that in front of me at this point. The applicant is not told which questions will be selected, but can see and study the top uh, the hundred questions before taking the test. And these hundred questions are are pretty basic and wholesome for people to know. For instance, the very first question that they mention on the test here is, uh, what is the supreme law of the land? And can we have an answer out there? Can I have a show of hands? 
Supreme law of the land is the Constitution. Second question, what does the Constitution do? And uh, you have, they give you an example of three what they believe to be the uh, correct answers that would all be counted as correct answers. It sets up the government. That's the most obvious thing it does. It defines the government and it protects basic rights of Americans. And particularly when you count the, uh, the idea. And then here's the third question. And I think this is very clever. This is a question about threes, which is, okay, they ask you the idea of self-government is in the first three words of the Constitution. What are these words? Okay, for anybody who wants to try, we will, we will send you a, uh, a, a gift subscription to, uh, to, to become a, a MedHead Plus member, which gives you free access to all our MedVet history programs. More than that, it's worth, uh, it's worth a, a great deal of money, actually. Uh, if somebody wants to call up, and I'll give you three questions, and if you get them all right, boom. Uh, we can give you three questions off the list. 1-800-955-1776. Uh, we will get to that uh, later this hour. But first off, one of the questions that they don't include on uh, this particular citizenship exam is a question that is raised by... Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, who has a new book called Providence and Power. And uh, on July 4th, 1776, when our founding fathers were having a busy day, what was the other thing that they did other than the Declaration of Independence? And the answer was they created a, a new committee for a great seal of the United States. And the suggestion by Benjamin Franklin, who was on that committee, was uh, profoundly intriguing and connected with America's biblical heritage. How? What did Americans draw as inspiration from the biblical Israel and its leaders? We will get to that and more coming up on the Medved Show. Are you feeling... So what else were the founders doing on that fateful day of July 4th, 1776? Uh, that is a terrific question to pose to Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, who is the director of Yeshiva University's Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought. He is also the rabbi at Congregation Shirat Israel in New York. It is the oldest Jewish congregation in the United States that has been continuously uh, functioning and holding services. And uh, he uh, also has a PhD in religion from Princeton University. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, what an honor to speak to you and congratulations on your new book, Providence and Power, 10 Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship. Thank you so much, Michael. It's wonderful to be speaking to you again. Well, it's great to be speaking to you. Uh, first of all, you, you uh, mention this uh, other assignment that the founders were taking on, 
beyond the Declaration of Independence on the same day that they were declaring independence. Uh, why was the the design for an image of the great seal of the United States so revealing? So uh, the committee, we should explain what the committee was because it's so remarkable. Uh, it's immediately after the approval of the Declaration that uh, the Continental Congress organizes a committee of Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson uh, to design a seal uh, for this nascent nation. And uh, what the proposal that they actually end up coming up with uh, by August is, and this was Franklin's idea, is uh, an image of Moses and Pharaoh at the sea uh, and uh, with the motto, rebellion to tyrants is obedience uh, to God. And uh, the fact that they chose this symbol, that they suggested it, though unfortunately uh, it's not what the Continental Congress uh, ultimately adopted. They were busy fighting the war. Uh, but what it highlights is, uh, first, of course, uh, how uh, profoundly uh, America looked to the Hebrew Bible and its imagery for inspiration at this moment. They saw themselves as being in parallel to biblical Israel, as a small uh, people rebelling against a mighty empire. But also, Michael, and I think this is, this is very, very important, uh, they saw themselves uh, as uh, a covenantal people. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has said that uh, 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 Israel, ancient and modern, and America are the only cases of nations born in dedication to an idea. So the focus of my book is not on America, but uh, on uh, biblical political leadership, but there's no question that the American founders uh, saw themselves as being in parallel to uh, the great biblical statesmen because of the uniqueness of the American story. In terms of what Americans can learn from the Ten Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship, which is a subject of providence and power, which is linked, of course, at our website at michaelmedved.com, there are a number of names that everyone will recognize. King David, uh, Queen Esther, uh, that's well known to everyone. Louis D. Brandeis, who was the first Jewish uh, justice on the Supreme Court and a leader, crucial leader for American Zionism. Uh, but there, there are other people who are, are less known to a broad audience. What particularly would be a, a message, say, for contemporary Americans from Yohanan ben Zakkai? who uh, survived the horrible second destruction of the temple. So one theme that exists throughout the book is the utterly unlikely nature of the endurance of the Jewish people uh, and what lies at the heart of that endurance. Uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai is uh, escaping Jerusalem as it's about to fall, and he asks, what, does the, what do the Jewish people need in order to last and to resist this traumatic event. And you know, Michael, uh, what he did was actually incredibly counterintuitive. Here you have the center of the Jewish faith, the Jerusalem and the temple is about to be destroyed. And as the, the Jewish thinker, Michael Wishograd, once noted, you could have expected rabbinic leadership to do one of two things, neither of which they chose to do. They could have said, you know what? We could just move the, the locus of Jewish longing to a different location. Not to Jerusalem. Or they could have said, you know what, we can, we can declare that what took place in Jerusalem, the devotional act that took place in the temple, that's not central to, to Judaism. Well, fashion a Jerusalem without, a Judaism without that. But they did neither of those things. 
And rather, what they said was, this was a severe defeat. But because we believe that we are a covenantal people, uh, we will endure uh, because God has promised that we will. And we need to keep in mind uh, what was what is central to our faith, perpetuate a memory of Jerusalem so that they continue to look toward Jerusalem while continuing to teach what was central to Jewish tradition from generation to generation. And what this guaranteed, of course, is that the Jewish people remained uh, ever whole uh, because uh, even as they were dispersed, because they continued to remember what bound them together, both in terms of creed, but also in terms of of Jerusalem. Uh, And therefore, the Jewish people endured so that it could ultimately, as we know, return to Jerusalem. And and I'll add uh, that what's striking today, Michael, is what I'm starting to see, and and maybe you could speak about your own experiences, uh, what's fascinating to me is that I now find that the miracle of modern Israel and of modern Jerusalem is an inspiration for many people of faith uh, in general, because now many people of faith are starting to feel Uh, like they face challenges. And what they see in the story of the endurance of Judaism is as a source of inspiration for the endurance of biblical faith. And many seek to learn the lessons uh, from that endurance and and find inspiration in the story of Jewish endurance and Jewish return for their own biblical faith. At least that's my experience. Uh, this is uh, all taken from uh, Providence and Power, the new book by Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, the uh, subtitle, Ten Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship. In terms of lessons that people should keep in mind, I'm not asking for any kind of candidate endorsement. What are some of the uh, examples of statesmanship that we should be looking for as we choose a new leader for the United States? So I think uh, what's, uh, what, as I know, what, what sets David apart is that he is simultaneously uh, an incredibly independent actor while still feeling that, feeling the humility and faith that he is part of something much larger than himself. That's not something that most great statesmen in history actually reflect. Churchill is my hero, but no one would say that Churchill is, was humble. That was not a virtue <laughs> no. for which he was known. But Lincoln was, Michael. The incredible aspect of Lincoln and American leadership at its best is that the greatest of American leaders simultaneously engaged in incredible, courageous, independent action, like Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation, for example, while at the same time feeling that because of the remarkable creedal and covenantal nature of America, they were actually part of something much larger, that God had a larger plan for America uh, for which they were a vessel. And so the balance between independence and humility, faith and proactive political engagement is something that is is uniquely biblical, though paralleled at its best in American leadership. And we should be seeking leaders that can reflect this profound balance at its best. And that's, amen to that. As a matter of fact, in my book, The American Miracle, uh, the chapter on Lincoln is called The Miracle of Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln defies so many expectations and rules. Uh, one can learn about providence and power, ten portraits in Jewish statesmanship through the book. 
uh, Providence and Power by Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik. It's posted on our website at michaelmedved.com. Coming up, uh, we're going to take uh, your calls for answering the new questions on the uh, citizenship test that is going to be given to people who seek naturalized citizenship. We will be right back on the Michael Medved Show with that. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Entertain your brain. Not crazy. Every day on the Michael Medved Show. Let's go. And on the Michael Medved Show, let's go with the, your ability to uh, answer questions that would be asked for anyone who wants to become a citizen of the United States. Last year, uh, more than one million people became U.S. citizens. Uh, they passed the test. They had lived here for five years. This is one of the requirements. It was one of the highest numbers on record a million people since 1907. Uh, that's the earliest year with available data. And uh, the uh, Immigration Service reduced the huge backlog of naturalization applications by over 60% compared to the year before. So uh, we are giving away a, a free subscription uh, membership, which gives you access to uh, download all of the uh, uh, to stream uh, all of the material in the Medved History Store and the daily podcast version of this show, commercial-free. Uh, if you get three questions in a row right, boom, you've won. Uh, let's go first to Kim in Tukwila, Washington. Hi. Kim, you there? Oh, I'm here. Yeah, this is Kim. Yeah, great. Okay, let me hit you with uh, three questions. Uh, okay. And these are questions from the actual U.S. citizenship and immigration background. Where, in order to qualify for citizenship, people have to get six out of ten right. For you to win, you have to get all three right, which are just going to be given to you in order. Um, what stops one branch of government, according to the Constitution, from becoming too powerful? We have a system of checks and balances with... Uh, Perfect. Uh, three, That's the uh, answer okay. that they want. Well done. Bing. Mm -hmm. You win that one. Okay. Uh, who makes federal laws? The uh, Congress, consisting of House and Senate. Perfect. Giving even more information than you needed. And uh, then the next question is, the House of Representatives has how many voting members? Uh, 430... Wait, <laughs> yes, 435. You're exactly right. Uh, Kim, Jeremy will take your information and we will get that uh, free membership out to you. Next up, from Walla Walla, Washington, the other side of this beautiful state, uh, let's uh, go to Ron. You're on the Medved Show. Hey, Michael. Great to be on your show. I've been listening since your first show in the 1990s. Wow. Well, thank you very much. Yes, we began July 31st 
1996, which is unbelievable to think about for me. Okay, one of the uh, questions, and these are a number that are right in order, the, uh, among the hundred questions that they could ask prospective citizens, if both the president and the vice president can no longer serve, who becomes president of the United States? The Speaker of the House. Absolutely right. Okay, here's one that is too easy, but I, you deserve it because it's next in line. Who is the commander-in-chief of the American military? The president of the United States. Absolutely right. Uh, and then uh, this one. Under our Constitution, some powers belong to the federal government. What is one power of the federal government that is not, uh, and basically they're comparing the power of the federal government to the power of the states? You want to name the power of the federal uh, government? The, uh, election, election law is uh, reserved to the states. Yes, but that's not the question. The question is what's reserved to the federal government? Oh, uh, foreign policy and the military. Absolutely. To, de to create an army, to declare war, to print money, and to make treaties. So uh, that's uh, three in a row. And uh, congratulations to you. Uh, what, what's interesting about this is you know, these are people who are calling up with fair confidence about, but there are aspects of this that uh, I think are terrific that they include, but um, they, uh, they, they have questions here, for instance, uh, who wrote the Federalist Papers? And you don't have to come up with all three of the authors. You have to come up with one of them. The Federalist Papers uh, supported the passage of the U.S. Constitution. Name one of the writers. And uh, then they asked you, uh, uh, what is one thing Benjamin Franklin is famous for? And uh, there are any number of things you could say on that issue. And then there were 13 original states, named three of them. What's, what's fascinating to me about this is I wonder if how many high school students who presumably are taking uh, civics or have some uh, uh, I idea of taking American history if how many people in high school could name uh, this kind of information, answer these questions? They have a section on history where they, uh, well, some of the questions are pretty easy. They ask a question, uh, name one problem that led to the Civil War. And uh, they will accept as an answer, apparently, uh, slavery, uh, economic reasons, or states' rights. Uh, and <laughs> there's a high school civics test, uh, and they ask the question, same question here. Um, and they, they are questions that seem to me to be very much directly taken. They ask this, before he was president, Eisenhower was a general. What war was he in? 
And <laughs> uh, this is their most uh, difficult. Uh, who was president during the Great Depression and World War II? Uh, by the way, that's uh, Eisenhower was in World War II. Uh, and he, he was a general in World War II. He's an officer during the time of World War I. And uh, then the Federalist Papers uh, supported the passage of the U.S. Constitution, named one of the writers. The three writers of the Federalist Papers uh, were James Madison, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, who wrote most of them, and, uh, and John Jay, who wrote a few. And uh, here is a toughie. This is another high school civics test. And again, it's, it's worthwhile that every American should know this stuff. What is the name of the national anthem? And uh, is it possible that Americans would get that wrong? Uh, it's, it's possible that they would get anything wrong. And uh, this is also very interesting that they have this. Uh, what did the Emancipation Proclamation do? And the actual answer is freed the slaves in the Confederate States because it did not free slaves who were living in states that had slavery but were part of the Union. There were four of those states, Missouri and Kentucky and Delaware, which had slavery, and uh, Maryland. Uh, but they are giving you a benefit of the doubt in the old uh, form of the citizenship test where basically they will even accept the answer, what did the Emancipation Proclamation do? Freed the slaves, period. And uh, they also ask you, uh, what did Susan B. Anthony do? Now, how many people would have an answer to that. Uh, they are accepting a broad answer, fought for women's rights or fought for civil rights. Uh, this is, is all fascinating. And what's amazing to me is I, I think of my, my mother and uh, my grandparents, uh, all four of them, going through these citizenship exams, which, by the way, have gotten much easier as the time went on but still important because it's a profound honor to be a citizen of this greatest nation on God's green earth. We'll be speaking, we'll be speaking to Ari Fleischer, a former White House aide, presidential press secretary, his comments on Cocaine Gate 2024 and more coming up in this greatest nation on